Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast, where we talk to creative people and find out where all that creativity comes from. I'm your host, Patrick Boggs. Across the table from me is our co-host, Norbert Yates. How's it going tonight, Norbert? I am kicking and ready to go. Perfect. That's exactly how we need you to be. Tonight, our guest is actress, businesswoman, and former Playboy playmate, Deborah Driggs. How's it going tonight, Deborah? I'm kicking and I'm ready to go. Hot diggity. Hey, that's what we need. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, our audience can't see, but I was actually doing the SNL skit where I kick it. Yeah. What was it, the Sherry O'Terry? She's like, "Eh." Yeah. No, Molly Shannon. Molly, Molly Shannon. Shannon. Oh, right. oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Yeah, you know, times like this, we need video. Dang yeah. on it. Kick it. A lot of people are going to, you know, once they hear Deborah Driggs, they're thinking about the Playmate, the Playmate Deborah Driggs. I know that there is so much more to your story, but as a Playmate, you're in a, an elite few. Uh, what brought you to that? What got you there? Oh, gosh. You know, it's... It, serendipitous ironic timing really because it was not on my radar i I can tell you that right now i never grew up first of all i never grew up thinking i was going to be a model and and then to then be considered for playboy was just kind of like this that was it was just i i remember when my agent called me i had already been modeling and i was with an agency and and I, you know, did a lot of catalog work. I'm five six, so I did commercial print, and so I did a lot of catalog. I did all those ads you see in the Sunday paper where the people are going, "Hey, you know, buy this luggage," or you know, that was me. Or I did, you know, I did modeling where I'd go to showrooms and try things on so the buyers. I did that kind of modeling. I was not a high fashion model because of my height. But when my agent called me, she said, Playboy has requested to have you come in and audition to be on the cover of this lingerie book. My first question was, is there nudity? And she said, I don't think so. You know, it's for the cover. So I went to the famous building on Sunset. I had never, I'd driven by it, you know, for years. And, you know, I thought, that's cool. It's the Playboy building. And now here I am walking in and it was just surreal, really. And and I went in, auditioned for this cover, and I did not think the audition went that well. And I left and I thought, well, that's not for me. And the minute I got back to where I was living, I got a message on my machine that said, we want to test you to be a centerfold. And I called my agent and I said, hey, I don't know if you know about this but she goes oh yeah they've already called and it's true they want to shoot you to be a centerfold for 1990 because this was 1989 and i said they they got the wrong girl like they're confusing me with one of the other girls because there were a lot of girls there i said i don't think they they know what they're talking about she goes no they're pretty serious on this so i went in and did a test shoot And then that just confirmed that, yes, I was going to test to be a centerfold. So 
me doing Playboy was literally off the radar, totally serendipitous and very, very kind of, you know, what, how do, how do you say it? I mean, it was just, it just happened. And, and before I shot all the pictorials and all the things that I did, I asked everybody that I had been, you know, I had a manager and I had a commercial agent and, and they all said, you have to do it. Playboy is the number at that time in 1989, Playboy was the number one magazine in the world. And they said, this is going to be so good for you. It's so sexy and it'll change your image to this sexy girl, whatever. And I thought, wow, this is crazy. (laughs) And at that time also, I was also studying very seriously in my acting craft. I really wanted to get my chops and I wanted to take acting more seriously. I would get sent on auditions and and I would get great feedback, but they were like, you're, you just got to, you know, just tighten up a little bit. And so I went and enrolled in this two year. So while I'm doing Playboy, I am now in this two year acting program. So it kind of all worked together because my confidence level on both ends really started to rise and I was getting called in for everything at that point. But that's, that's literally, I, I fell into Playboy and I'll, I'll tell you this. I did not know anything about Playboy. And I remember maybe the third day of shooting, I was in the makeup room with a makeup artist and she and I became really good friends. Her name was Mary. And I said, Mary, this is so surreal for me. Like I'm in the Playboy building shooting a centerfold issue she's like i know it's crazy right she goes deborah you know and this is a fact back then in 1989 she goes do you know that playboy gets over 10,000 submissions a day wow from girls all over the world that want to be in the magazine and i said i had no idea she's like yeah she goes this is a real gift for you and it kind of just I don't want to say it fell into my lap. I had worked really hard up until that point, but just timing, really. It's kind of the old, uh, you know, work all my life to become an overnight su- success, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And by the way, a lot of the girls that do Playboy, that's it. That's like the, that's where they set the bar. It's like, I just want to be in Playboy. And I was set the bar it other things and so playboy was just for me it was a stepping stone it was like okay i'll do playboy but i really want to do this and i really want to do this and i want to be on this sure you know i kept pushing the envelope a little bit and so it 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 was the right time the right place the right people the right the right moves all the right moves talk about the differences or what do you think was more powerful the confidence it gave you or changed your attitude having done that experience or the way companies, Exposure. opportunities come to you or, and, and was there a downside to it? Was, you know, if you would kind of compare and contrast, what was, what, what did it do for you? So I will say that, okay, let's talk. I always like to start with a positive. So the positive was, yes, the doors opened up, the floodgates opened, and all of a sudden people wanted to meet me. I did Oprah Winfrey. I did the Bob Hope special. I I got thrown around, you know, as you can imagine. And because I also had this acting experience and I had already been working, I wasn't that girl that came from, you know, somewhere in Canada 
and flew to Hollywood to do Playboy and then got thrown into stuff. I was already the girl that had been working. And so because I, I, I did Playboy and then all of a sudden doors opened and the floodgates opened, I was prepared. More so than a girl that's coming from somewhere else that is doing Playboy and then gets thrown into auditions and has no idea what that entails. I knew what it entailed because I'd been doing it and I had already I had already done, I already had a resume of commercials and TV credits by the time I did Playboy. So I was prepared. And so when those things came along, I I was first choice always. It was like, oh, no, send Deborah. She's ready. Where maybe other girls that were the same year, right around my time, they that wasn't their thing. They weren't looking to do that. I was looking to to really be an entertainer. And so that was the that was the upside is that the doors and the floodgates opened. The downside was I was really um, making my way by doing all these catalogs and I had a lot of clients that were very family oriented. And I knew that the minute I did Playboy, they would no longer use me. Wow. And so that was the only downside, really. And so it was kind of like you have to use the, you have to kind of weigh it out. And for me, it made more sense to do Playboy. It was the number one magazine in the world. And it literally gave me exposure that those other things were not going to, were not going to catapult me in any way. So it worked out. Wow. As a model and also drawing on your experience with Playboy, I've always wondered how much creative control do you have in the in what you're doing, the poses, the um, you know, the, the I know that a lot of times they say they have the setup right there, they've got um the background and everything, but how much other control do you have as far as deciding how to pose and 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 that? Well, I will say uh, from the creative standpoint, I had a lot of influence on how I saw myself being portrayed. So they asked me, and I think this is really smart and brilliant on their part because you don't want to say, oh, we're going to do this and put somebody in a situation that they're not going to feel comfortable. And so for me, I had, they ask you, they when you fill out, you know, you fill out these forms, they ask you, how do you see yourself being portrayed how what kind of theme would you want to do and I had just seen the movie Dangerous Liaisons and I was so infatuated with this very old French old world French look and so I said I want it to look very Dangerous Liaisons and they love that you know because I was already feeling it in myself and I think when you feel something in yourself, it, it shows up better rather than them going, we're going to do, I mean, if they would have put me in some ice cream popsicle stand, licking ice cream or something, you know, in a little hat, you know, I probably wouldn't, that wouldn't have worked for me where that works great for other girls. Sure. And you know what I mean? Or, uh, or a beach um, layout was not what I was feeling. It was not my vibe. So for me, it was a real European 
feel. And so they really wanted that input and that feel, and which I think is great because now you have it all kind of clicks. And so that was good. But, you know, the things that I did not have control over, and I did not know this, I was very young, you know, when I did Playboy, is that you sign away all the all the photos that are taken of you. And there are thousands of photos that are taken. And, you know, it's, you know, eight end up in the magazine, but there are thousands left over and you have no control over any of that. Wow. So now you have to remember when I did Playboy, there was no internet. There was no Google. You didn't Google Playboy. Right. All of a sudden, 12 years later, people are Googling and all my images are showing up, thousands of images. And I'm like, these are outtakes, you know? And so I actually kind of did a little, not a lawsuit, but I did a, a thing where I said, hey, the internet was not around in 1989 and I didn't sign off on this. So I kind of cleaned up a little bit of what was going on for all the playmates. You know, we didn't, us girls that were in the early 90s, we didn't sign up for internet stuff. Sure. And, then all of a sudden, and then all of a sudden, you can imagine how that must feel when thousands of photos are, you know, now on the internet and accessible to anybody. It was kind of, it was very strange. It's like have you know, you have these great paintings, but you have all the sketches that led up to those paintings. You may not want those out. Exactly. When you look back on that now, well, what do you think of those pictures? I really don't have any. I just think that was a time in history. You know, it's over 30 years ago, and I was a kid, and and Playboy was really, honestly, a very small part of the things that I've done in my life. Because of the enormity of the magazine, it stands out quite a bit as to a pivotal point in my life, but for me living my life, it was a small part, if that makes sense. I had a friend that had collected every Playboy since its existence. He's in his basement. He's got these um, huge book racks with all, it, they're all cataloged and, and uh, split up in years and everything like this. And he writes and he uses the Playboys to kind of when he wants to write a story about a certain year or decade or something like that, he goes through the Playboy. Playboy has such a, a reputation of really the good life. You know, a lot of the you know the beautiful women that are that are in there, plus articles on the best cars, the best places to vacation, great smart articles. It was um, a lifestyle. Yes. And so yes. Half started out. He worked at Esquire magazine, and he took the best of what Esquire had for men and he made it into Playboy and what Playboy really gave men in my opinion was a life that they would have never dreamed of it talked about and you are absolutely correct when you say it had great articles on cars and this and that but where he got all the advertisers was you know these are the best cigars that you want to smoke this is the best cognac these are the best cars this is how you want to dress this is how you date and it was a men's lifestyle magazine and half was the ultimate playboy his vision really had nothing to do with 
having nude girls in a magazine. It had to do with a man's life living a five-star life is how I looked at it. And that's why you had some of, like, people used to, that you know, the old saying, I read Playboy for the articles where, right. you know, that was, that was a joke, but it was also very true because the articles were, to this day, they go down in history as some of the best interviews, articles in a magazine. He, he, the, the playmate was the icing, the cherry on this whole five-star level of experience. He took you on an experience. He, he took you, when you opened that magazine in the eighties, you were going on a ride, you know, and it wasn't just about you didn't, unless you were in your bathroom and you were 12 years old, you weren't rushing to look at the centerfold. Most men were like looking at the clothes and the cars and reading the articles. So when they said that, that was became like a funny joke, but it really wasn't. It was true. Some of the best interviews you'll ever read came from Playboy. Oh, absolutely. I was want to go back a little further. When did you start modeling? Was it a focus of yours? Was your parents in, encouraging it or was they something that they was reticent about? What kind of, was it what you wanted to do to starting out as a, you know, whenever you started? Nope. nope. I grew up figure skating and I wanted to go to the Olympics. I wanted to be an athlete. I wanted to skate and I wanted to dance. And with, with ice skating comes ballet. And so I spent a lot of time taking ballet and I spent a lot of time on the ice for many years. And when that came to an end, my freshman year in high school, I joined the dance team in high school and then I became a song leader. And then I, cheered in college and then I became a professional cheerleader and then I was doing involved in other dance projects and this and that and I ended up getting a gig going to Japan in 1983 and while I was in Japan I did a commercial a legitimate tv commercial and I started this modeling gig in Japan in Osaka and I thought wow I never thought this was a possible thing. And I came back to California six and a half months later with a lot of tear sheets and a lot of experience being in front of the camera. And I thought, I I actually didn't really want to model. I wanted to do commercials because I liked live. I liked talking. I liked doing ad, you know, like, you know, and in Japan, they love animation. And so I ended up going to this um workshop in Hollywood called Tepper Gallegos, 1984, I believe. And I paid for it with the money that I made in Japan. And, and you do six weeks of commercial training. And at the end of six weeks, they bring in agents and they hand you a, as if you were at an audition, they hand you a commercial and you have to improvise and do the whole thing. So I did. And three of the agents that night came up to me immediately and wanted to sign me and so I chose an agency called Pacific Artists. And I, it's very vague to me now because this was 1984. But I believe that they had a modeling agency attached to them called Max. And so that's where I started going out on print jobs. But mainly I was booking commercials. So now... Um... And by the way, no, my family 
So just so you know, and I, this is one of my sayings to this day is I say things like never go to advice for people who cannot see it for themselves, because when people can't see it for themselves, they're not going to see it for you. So you want to be really careful who you share your, your dreams or your aspirations with, because if they don't see it for themselves and they don't, you know, you know, and let, you know, there's a lot of people out there that if they can't see how it's going to be worked out, it doesn't exist. And I don't think that way. I think everything can be done. We just have to figure out how to think that way. And so I remember when I told my everybody, you know, in my family, I was like, oh, I'm going to model and I'm going to do it. They were like, you're five, six. You're not super skinny. You're not this. You're not that. You're not this. You're not that. You know, giving me all the things that I wasn't. And I thought, wow, you know, when I look back on that now, can you imagine if I would have listened? Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have had this extraordinary career that I've had. Obviously, you've done multiple things. As you look at your CV, you've been in real estate, you've written books, you've modeled, you've done commercials, you've acted. What do you enjoy the most doing and what do you feel like you're the best at? Ah, okay. Let's see. That's a great question. I think I'm at the best. I think I'm the best with relating to people. I think I'm a really good people person. So of all the careers that I've had and all the things that I've done, the one thing that seems to be the, the, the common denominator is dealing with people, whether it's going on an audition, whether it's selling a house, whether it's selling life, whatever it is that I've done, it's dealing with people. And I have no call reluctance. I'll call anybody. I don't ever feel intimidated by, if somebody were to say, you should call this person, I'll go, okay. Where other people go, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know if I should. And I don't have a reluctance. I don't have a, I don't have a, a part of my body that goes, I'm not sure. It's just, okay. So I have, that is probably what I'm the best at is networking and, and people, anything that involves people. And what was the second part of the question? What do you feel the most comfortable or you enjoy the most? Oh gosh. Okay. So I will tell you, this is, this is a true story. So, you know, of all the years that I modeled and did commercials, I did pilots, I did little, you know, walk-ons on movies and TV shows, but the job that I enjoyed the most, and it paid me zero money, which tells me so much about life was I hosted a two hour unscripted morning show in park city. And that brought me more joy than any job I'd ever been paid for. It was just, it was so freeing to host a show that was unscripted and, you know, have people on. And I got to interview quite a few people, especially during Sundance, because it was in Park City. And that was one of my most favorite jobs. And it paid zero. That, to me, would be amazing. I think that would be one of it the really best was. jobs in the world. It really was. Like, I have to tell you, if somebody came to me right now and said, hey, do you want to host this show? But we have no money. We have no budget. I'd be like, yeah. Like, it's not because that was that was so much fun. And I, I used to get up at 4.30 every morning to do this show. There was two hours unscripted. It, we taped it and then it would play over and over all morning in Park City because it was the local morning show and 
it was just so, I mean, it just, that brought me pleasure. It was like, I felt really um, like I had found my niche in, you know, what I was good at. That sounds great. How'd you get to Park City? I know that that's kind of where your real estate started, isn't it? Yes. So um, let's see. In 2002, my husband and I started talking about, you know, not raising our kids in LA. We started having this conversation. We had a few friends in Park City and I said, you know, why don't I go and check out what it is? We'd always gone in the winter. I said, why don't I go in the spring and see what it's like? And I took my oldest daughter and we went, we rode bikes and we looked at the neighborhoods and we fell in love with it. And I found a house for rent and I called my husband and I said, hey, I, I found this house for rent. Should we do it? And we did. And I ended up raising my kids there. We got divorced a year later, but um, I ended up staying and raising the kids there. Wow. That's cool. Obviously, you've had success as being a model and doing commercials. You've had a lot of positive feedback. You was talking about relating to people and you relate in a, you know, you're on a morning show and you're relating, trying to relate to the average, you know, housewife or whoever is watching the show. How do you, how do you think about relating to people that may have had a completely different life experience as you? Maybe they've had, you know, very little success and they've, you know, their self-image from that standpoint is not uh, of one of, of overcoming. How do you, how do you relate to people like that? That is a really good question. And I would say to you that I've never lost where I came from. And I came from a very low class, no money family. You know, I did not come from any type of anything that I did in my life. I did. Nobody handed anything to me. I got into a business where there, you know, a lot of people have nepotism and, you know, they're the nephew of some producer or director. I didn't know anybody. I, I moved to L.A. and knew nobody and created a life for myself. And so I relate very well to all different types of people and all different types of jobs and and stuff. I mean, listen, I am not above having to clean toilets if I had to, you know, and that's the absolute truth. I mean, I can tell you in 2009, when nothing was available to me, I had to work on a boat and literally I scrub floors and clean toilets. So I think that's what probably makes me the most approachable is that I'm not just this privileged entertainer, you know, successful this. I've also had low points where I've had to figure it out and kind of go back to you know, okay, it's I. This is a, a setback, but you know, I, I think that's that makes me relatable. Where a lot of people that are in the industry just have always been in the industry through some, you know, and I know the stories, and that's not my story. You know, I didn't have success because I knew somebody. I had success because I made success. I made my way. I forced people to sign me when they didn't want to sign me. <laughs> you know, I really did. I, I can remember I, I've sat in many P 
people's offices saying, just sign me. I promise you, I will book something. And, you know, that's how I, that's how I rallied, you know, there was no, well, I know so-and-so and that that person referred me. It was me. I also remember reading in your biography about how you don't take no for an answer. So no, no, <laughs> I don't believe in no. I don't believe in no. I, I think it's appropriate in certain situations, like as a mother, when you tell your kids <laughs> no. But as a business person, I just don't believe in the word no. I think no means maybe. I think no is never the final. Because if, if, you, if you think about it, I've had so many examples of when people have said no to me and then months down the road, that no turned into a maybe, you know, or even a yes. So no, I can't. I just, and by the way, if you believe no is no, then no is no. And so I'm really careful about what I believe and what I say, because our words have so much power. I've had people say to me things like, oh, well, you don't want to sign with them. They're criminal. Like, okay, I will tell you, if you say somebody's criminal, then they are, and that's what you're putting out, and that's what you're going to attract, Mm. is everything that's criminal or not good or not just or not fair. You know, you attract that. So why would you ever say words that you... You don't want to, I just, I'm so careful about the things that come out of my mouth because I don't want to, I don't want to have those beliefs. I don't want to believe that. And by the way, and by the way, somebody might be criminal. Okay. Let's just say this. Somebody might be, but I don't need to say it. Right. It doesn't need to be a part of my story. It doesn't need to be a part of my energy of what's going around me. I want to keep rising above and you know what in life there are going to be so many things that are unjust unfair unlikable you know or criminal or this or that it's you know and we say these things flintly you know what i mean like we just say them i don't even know if that's a word was that a word flintly we're going to add it to the websters we're going to add it to deb's words deb's words of the day yeah, flintly, because we say these things not realizing the, the impact they have on the energy around us. We say things like, I'm, I don't want to do business with them because they're such and such is just coming back to me. So I'm super careful about that. I'm really cognizant of that. Well, a lot of times, too, when that's being said, in, in, in some ways, even though that may not be true, that's a good way to... That's the out for you. You know, that's that's basically you saying no to yourself, saying, well, they're criminal. Uh, so you've decided that I'm not going to deal with these people because because I'm afraid to really. You know what I'm saying? I'm really afraid Absolutely. to. And, and if they're a, a criminal gang, maybe that's a good you idea. Made, <laughs> you, you said the absolute correct thing where you said you decided that they were criminal. What if you decided that they were the best in the world and this is the people that you wanted to do the most business with because they were the best in the world. That is going to change everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even if it's not true, just anything you believe is what's true. And it's a higher level of thinking. I'm all about that. And, you know, I think that, uh, well, we talk about this on the show all the time. What we've discovered about people that are creative, two things. One thing is, you don't stop. 
and you're always positive. And if, I mean, those are really two things that everybody we've talked to that has any kind of success, those are the things that they have. They, they don't stop. Like you, they got they get up at four a.m. in the morning to to learn to skate, and then they go back skate afterwards. They don't stop that. You know what I'm saying? They keep going. So I'm, it was nice to hear you say that. Yeah. What What drives you? Oh gosh, it's so different now. You know, each decade something different drives me. Um, or not even each decade, but you know, it just it rapidly changes. What drove me 20 years ago definitely doesn't drive me today. I mean, in my 20s, money drove me. Money does not drive me today. Being of service drives me today. That's what drives me. It's like if I, if, you know, I have this whole thing now where I just want to help anybody who's suffering and then I have to be really careful because we're all suffering. So you got to be really careful about that. But, you know, that's what kind of drives me now. It's like I'm in a different zone you know in your in my 20s it was all about me 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 money 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 succeed and I just thought you know if I could do this then I'd be successful if I did this I'd be even more successful and I don't you know and then in my 30s it was about being a mom and my kids and in my 40s I really fell into a midlife crisis slump and I would say in my 50s it's about being of service it's about really looking at uh, uh, a a picture that is not about me, and it's about what I can contribute, what I can give back. I, I'm not I'm not driven by money because I've had money, and that that's that's good for about five minutes. And anybody who knows, I've I've sat in seminars where I, I think it was Tony Robbins where he said, "Raise your hand." If you got super excited when you made the most money you ever thought you were going to make, and I remember that happened to me, you know, when I finally made, you know, a certain amount of money that it was my goal, and you raise your hand, and how long were you happy? Were you happy for an hour? Keep your hand up. And everybody kept their hand up. Were you happy for a day? Keep your hand up. Were you happy for a week? And then all of a sudden the hands start going down. You know, and I thought, see, money is not the driver of happiness. It's purpose. It's being of service. It's it's, you know, money is not, it doesn't, that feeling of accomplishing for a financial gain is a very, to me, short-term feeling. It doesn't last, but when you really do something out of purpose, out of heart, out of love, out of service, that lasts, that kind of stays with you, you kind of get a little jacked up because you're like, okay, I'm helping a lot of people right now and I'm getting people responding going you're really helping me and that excites me and I'm not making a dime so when you weigh that when you you know I've had both experiences so yeah I think that's that's what excites me today that dovetails into what I was really interested to hear your thoughts on you you was I think you know our uh our pre thing you was talking about you do an uh um a newsletter called uh, aging gracefully and okay so i have a blog i have a blog. A blog that i write and basically i write about my life experiences through different topics so i use myself as the disaster because i really believe that disasters can be great masters if if you're growing and learning and i'm still learning and growing 
but I have spent a lot of time getting certified and all these different things. And so my weekly blog is me writing about a topic that I sucked at. Right. And, huh. I, and, and, and the main one is relationships. I sucked at being married. I sucked at being a wife. I sucked at, you know, I didn't know really what drove, what drove all that. I didn't have any examples growing up. And so I'm really intrigued by that subject. So I write a lot about that. And then I have a newsletter that people can sign up for and get a, you know, weekly newsletter. And then anything that I'm doing, whether it's in the, you know, in business or, you know, I have a book coming out this year, a historical fiction called Son of a Basque. And whether it's that or a little, uh, not a little, a movie that I worked on, you know, what, whether, whatever it is, it's, that's what I'm sharing now. And I'm having more fun now than I did in my 20s, really, to be honest with you, because there's no pressure. I don't, you know, I'm not out to prove. In my 20s, I was really out to prove everybody wrong. I don't know why. It was like a rebel without a cause. <laughs> I, I really I, was a rebel without a cause. I, I've got this question that I, I, I really want to hear your thoughts on because it's something that I sort of understand and I feel very empathetic for. I think of young ladies that have been, you know, modeling and or actresses and they've been, uh, you know, basically they're works of art. You know, I mean, they're just oh. works of arts. And as they age, they desperately try to hold on to that look and of of being 20 or 30. And I feel like an empathy for people because you see them struggle and there's obvious, um, you know, extreme examples of that. And I just don't, I feel like it's, it's so sad that their self-worth is so wrapped up into that one aspect of themselves, which I mean, I understand how it happens, but I, I was just obviously someone who, you know, has done what you've, you've done. You're obviously was, uh, well, very beautiful and unfortunately we're in a business where this is what we're selling this package right so unfortunately and this is you know kind of a good news thing for me because I never got famous enough in the acting part of my career that nobody cares what I look like at 58 nobody no you know what I mean like people aren't gonna there's not gonna be before and after photos of me now there will be, but there wasn't going to be, but now there will be because I'm talking about it. But, you know, when you have somebody who's really famous, and I'm trying to think of uh, the actress that got really, uh, oh, Renee Zellweger, when oh, she yeah. went and started doing all this stuff, and then they were, you know, it was just nonstop. And I thought, the poor girl can't even go and do some touch up work without having it be like, you know, and yet we're in an industry where we have to keep our we have to keep up on our game and work, you know. I I look at it this way. Nobody cares, you know, about my career because I did s- such small stuff in the acting world that nobody's going to go, "Oh, re- you know, re- look at her now." Type they're, they're not going to do that. So I'm fortunate that way where when you have 
big stars and they do that before I just my heart just goes ah like you know because that industry this industry perpetuates that well, in this very in this very non-verbal way it's a perpetuated you know you have to look a certain way you have to be a certain you know and you don't then I look at other actors that don't ever do anything like Meryl Streep I mean I don't think she's ever had Botox and she can act and do anything she wants there's a different there's different levels of this I just want to say is that it doesn't just apply to you know famous actors I know people you know, in the, how do you say it? You know, around know. town, the round town, the, the ladies I, that have to get, you know, they get to a certain age and they're, you know, they're doing all kinds of transformation. I'm thinking, you don't have to do that. If you, you know, if a person has a certain personality that, you know, you grow as, as you're aging, it's cool. It's cool. You, you, you can be an interesting person. I've yeah. just... It's and it's sad because I've seen you know like I said said you know the high end uh, townspeople you know the the lady you know at forty forty five uh oh they're starting to do some transformations. Well, it's also you know even even in my twenties when I was doing Playboy and and I remember there were some girls that got turned down from Playboy and they would say well you know it's her nose and that girl would run out. And redo the nose and come back and test again. Oh, well, it's the this. And then they'd go and fix it. I, I knew a few girls that did that until they finally got got to be a centerfold. And I thought, oh, my God. Like, But you also were telling us earlier, too, there were, there were people that that was their entire goal. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. I just, and I still see it now. Like, I see it with social media. I see these girls that use every filter that's available and and you know i see women in there that are my age that don't look my age i mean do i use filters i mean i not purposefully you know what i mean like i have a team that does all my flyers and stuff but for the most part i'm pretty much what you see i'm 58 i have wrinkles i haven't done anything yet and you're you a superstar. <laughs> you can't see it on this. <laughs> no. This, on this lighting, but you know, if it was first thing in the morning and I didn't have makeup and I didn't have my hair kind of blown out and wearing kind of a blade, you know what I mean? Like if I just get out of bed, I look my age. You know, in Zoom, um, I know you're thinking, how how can I look at this super attractive dude? But uh, Zoom actually has a filter too built in, so that I always have that on because <laughs> it right? kind of smooths you out a little bit. So you know, totally. I didn't know there was a filter like that. Absolutely, well, you can yeah. do everything. You can add oh. eyebrows. You can do all that stuff. Hey, Deborah, um, tell us, tell me about how to get to your website. www.debradriggs.com. Awesome. One more time. www. DebraDriggs.com. It's really easy. And then if you go to Deb's Den, that's what I call my 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 blog. It's kind of like, you know how men have their man caves? Well, I have Deb's Den. There you go. Perfect. And it's just a, it's a place where I write about stuff that I've been through. And from my heart, really, it's my journey. And I hope that 
you know, I do know that a lot of people have, it's taken a while for people to kind of jump aboard and come on and, and do that. And then, you know, I do uh, some speaking uh, via podcast because I'm not, I'm still not going in person yet, but um, it's been, a, it's been quite a beautiful journey. And like I said, it's, this is not the big pain gig that I've had. This is the, the service journey. Well, and the the website's awesome. It looks awesome. It's got so much good information about you. Tell us a little bit about your, uh, you've got a movie coming out called I do. Uh, Neon Bleed. It's in Neon post-production. Bleed. And we're really excited because we just got, um, we got into the Idlewild Film Festival, which is in Palm Desert in March. So I'll be there promoting the film. Oh, cool. Congratulations. And, um, yeah, it's a really, it's a fun script. I mean, it's drama, but it's a fun, you know, it's a fun, it was a fun project. And I, when I read the script, I thought, wow, this is pretty cool because it's a friend of mine wrote it and directed it. And when he asked me to play the mom, I said, of course, I would, you know, I, you know, again, just being of service wasn't about the money. There was no money. It's a low budget and, but really good talent, really good talent and just, you know, I knew the day that I worked on it, I knew, and I only had one day of, of shooting. I just knew. I was like, oh, this is going to be an interesting film. Oh, so, very good. And it got selected for that film festival. I'm super excited. And so we'll see what happens after that. But, yeah, that's fun. And then I, like I said earlier, I have a book coming out August, September called Son of a Bass. So if you go to my website and you kind of stay in touch with me, um, I'm going to go on a whole book promotion thing for this book because I am putting everything I have, my own resources, I'm publishing it, I'm doing all the work, I'm doing everything because I really feel it's it's a great story. It's a historical fiction. It's about um, my grandfather. It's based on his life and... um, he was from the Basque country in Spain, and and it, there's just so many things in this book that are so inspiring that I thought I have to publish it, and I have to make a screenplay out of it. Oh, wow. So, yeah. That's awesome. I also wanted to point out, if they go to debradriggs.com, yes. it advertises a free gift. I do. So I have a free you- gift. Because I'm putting, I'm putting a program together that I did last year, and I really found that it really helped me. I think there's, uh, there's so many programs out there, right? There's so many different things you can do from physical programs to emotional prog- programs to trauma-related programs. And so I did one kind of based on relationship and trauma. And so... In November 2020, I decided that I was going to put everything aside and focus on myself. And I think it was around January, I woke up one night at two in the morning, and I was just riddled with fear. And I go, you know what, I'm going to get up and do something different. And I had a whiteboard and I erased it and I just started writing. And for some reason, I was writing things like remove this, remove that, remove that. And I'm not, I don't usually come from the place of removing. I always want to add. 
And so, but something was coming up for me while I was doing that. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do this for 90 days. So I did it. And then I got to the 90 day point and I thought I'm going to keep going. So I did six months and then I kept, you know, I wrote everything that I was doing and it really worked. And I thought, you know, this is my program. And so I don't want to give too much away, but if you go to my website and you sign up for the free gift, you will be one of many people that I will do this program with for free. Oh man. It's awesome. That is very cool. You'll do do exactly what I did for 90 days. And what I found was that not only did I heal from just all this, what I hate to use the word trauma because it's so dramatic. It's like, ah, because trauma could be anything from being in a car accident, being raped to being, you know, um, seeing something that was traumatic. Sure. Trauma could be. It's such a, it's, there's such a wide variety of, on the menu of trauma, right? And so, but then there's, you know, that energy that goes with it and how we bring that into all these things in our life. And so for me, the only way that I really was able to clear all that was to just remove everything for 90 days to see exactly where I was in my journey and my self-love and my this and my that Instead of, you know, jumping from this to this to this to avoid doing what I did. And I think a lot of people do that. They just jump from something or some something or somewhere to avoid where they are. And so I've, I, I was invited to speak on this panel and I was one of the last speakers. And at the end of our talks, we were invited to give something away. And I said, well, if anybody wants me to take them through for free what I've done they can email me well I literally got 20 emails within 15 minutes and I thought okay I'm just gonna I'm gonna do this now for a group of people so that's why it says sign up for my free gift because from all the people that have signed up I'm gonna choose 20 and take them for free through my program oh very cool that's a great inspiring right? yes very inspiring that's very good and it is definitely uh giving back and that's yes. uh that's awesome well deborah we probably kept you long enough tonight i really appreciate coming on this has been a blast talking to you thank you so much i'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here with you all and thank you for taking an interest in what i'm doing and what's going on and god bless oh absolutely hey everybody check out deborahdriggs.com Check out her blog, Deb's Den. There's a lot of cool stuff there. Deb, we will maybe we'll talk to you down the road. I'd love to chat again about all, all what's going on with you. Stay in touch. I'd love it. All right. Sounds good. Have a good night. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative. You're too late. Catch a ride somewhere else. Catch a ride. Catch a ride.